y'all would, grab your Bibles and let's go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 26 and we'll go through verse 38. We're going to talk tonight about baptism. I think it's a good night to talk about it and what it... um, what it means and uh, why we do it. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Savannah, would you grab me a water? Please, ma'am. Thank you. All right, Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. (laughs) That's where he got it from. Okay. A court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, thank you, and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet talk about? Is it himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus Christ. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing." Tonight, what I want you to notice first off is that baptism is not just a a Christian tradition that we do. It's not just a Baptist tradition that we do. Now, what I mean by that is that one of the reasons why we are called Baptist is because we started re-baptizing what um, the Catholics said were already baptized children. We believe in a believer's baptism, not just a, a what they would call a covenant baptism, I guess you could say. We believe that baptism represents the statement of faith that you yourself confess. And so one of the things that, that came from Catholicism was that they baptized the children, the babies as they were born. And so Baptists, because they believed in a believer's baptism, would then take those children who had already been baptized, and when they made a statement of faith, they would re-baptize them. And so 
they began to call us um, Anabaptists is what it was. It basically means to, to re-baptize. We were re-baptizers. And so today we've shortened that to be Baptist because of the way that we practice baptism. But I want to teach you tonight why we practice it the way we do, what it is that, that we actually believe the Bible teaches us it is, and I want you to make sure that you have a good understanding of what you just saw tonight, what it means, and um, is it the moment of salvation when you get baptized, or does salvation occur before this happened? You know, what is this all? How does this all coincide with it? And so I want you to understand tonight that what we're looking at is a celebration of a, of a proclamation of faith. And well, I'll show you scripture to back that up here in just a few minutes. But basically, you remember whenever um, um, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with His disciples and He told them, He said, this is my body. It was broken for you. Eat this and do this in remembrance of me. And then He took the cup in the same way. He basically told them, this is a supper that you are going to do as a memorial service. So we have this juice or this bread that represented what? His body. So it was just a, a physical representation of a spiritual reality, right? And then you had the cup, which represented what? His blood. He said, this is... My blood, the new covenant between you and God that comes through what I've done for you. And so what we have are physical pictures of spiritual realities. And this is something that God does with everything. God is an invisible God. The whole reason He created was He said, I'm going to create man in what? That's right. In the image of God, He created man. So again, what does God do? He takes physical things, and He makes them to be images of spiritual realities. And so, one of the things that Jesus said in the Lord's Supper, whenever He got done with it, He said, listen, as often as you eat this bread, and as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Y'all remember that? And so, one of the things we learn in that is not only is this a memorial service that reminds us of what Jesus did with His body and His shed blood. But it is also a service that... Well, hello, Candace. <clears throat> Come on in. Cadence, I'm sorry. Cadence, thank you. <clears throat> it is not just a memorial service, but it is also a proclamation of faith. Now, what is a proclamation? What does it mean to proclaim something? You announce it, right? You make an announcement to the world that this represents the Lord's death and my faith and my, and, and my hope is in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ and what He has done for me. And every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, that's what we're doing. We are proclaiming to each other that this is what I believe. Jesus' body was broken because of my sins. His blood was shed so that I could be made right with God. And I proclaim that to the world every time I do this. Well, in the same sense, what we have in baptism is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. And again, we'll look at that here in a minute, but one of the things that we notice in 
the Scriptures that we just read is that in the presentation of the Gospel... Now, we don't. all we get is that he's reading these Scriptures in Isaiah. Philip comes up to him and says, Do you understand it? And he's true and he's right when he says, How can I understand it unless someone explains it to us? Because unless God opens our eyes, unless the Spirit draws you, guess what? You can't come. And so... He's right. I can't understand it unless God explains it to me. And Philip then takes through the power of the Holy Spirit and he preaches the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch. And in the process of this gospel, there was some kind of a message about baptism and what it means. How do we know that? Because the first words out of the Ethiopian eunuch's mouth was, Here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip's response to him was, nothing if you believe with all your heart. In other words, if you truly believe in the gospel with all of your heart, then nothing hinders you from going through with the physical picture of the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is, I have heard the gospel, I understand it and I believe it. And the... The salvation comes when we believe in the gospel. But then Jesus commanded us, and that's the first thing I want you to remember about baptism today, is it's not an option. And this is tough for a lot of us because we've been taught as Baptists all our life, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. And that's true. There is truth to that. But I also think that so many times we lean on that teaching so much that we take away the significance of what just happened back here. That we don't understand that this picture is important to God. It is a proclamation of of Cadence's faith. you got me wanting to call her Candace now. It is a proclamation of Cadence's faith. And so literally, whenever she was baptized back there, that was her proclaiming her confession of faith that said, I believe that my old life and all my sins have been buried in the death of Jesus Christ and they've been washed away. And I believe that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, even so, He has given me new life from the deadness of my sins. He has raised me up to walk in a new life that He has given me. And it was her proclamation of faith to say that I believe this is what has happened in me spiritually And this picture physically demonstrates it. The same way, whenever you partake of the Lord's Supper, do you really believe that you crucify Jesus again when you break that bread or you drink that cup? Do you believe that Jesus shed His blood again? No. That spiritual reality already happened. But you put your faith and your trust in it. And every time you do that, it's your proclamation of faith that says, I believe that Jesus' body was broken for me. I believe that His blood was shed for me. And I believe that I am proclaiming His death, that that is my hope and that is my trust until the day that He comes again. And that's what we're doing in this. And so, the first thing again that I want you to understand about baptism is it's a command, not an option. Look with me if you would, if you got your Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. 
Notice what He says in verse 18 of Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. So Jesus has all authority, right? Heaven and on earth. It has all been given to Him because of what He has done. And now based on that fact, based on the fact that Jesus has all authority, now here's what He says to them in verse 19. Go therefore. In other words, think about this. The one that has all authority has said to His disciples now, go. He gives them a command to follow. What right does He have to give them a command to follow? He has all authority in heaven and on earth. So here's the command. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The main part of this is that we are making disciples of Jesus Christ. What are disciples? What do they do? Alright? Disciples are followers, right? Disciples are people... So if... If there is somebody who is a disciple of me, what are they doing? They're following me. They're doing what I do. They're living like I live. They're walking like I walk. So he says here, go therefore and make disciples. Make people who follow me. And he says, I want you to do this of all nations. And then next, here's what you do. After you have made disciples, and we make disciples by preaching the gospel, right? and they believe the gospel, and they choose to follow Jesus. And then after that, here's what we do. Baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. So the next step in your salvation, once you have heard the gospel, once you believe the gospel, Jesus, who has all authority, now commands, not asks, commands, be baptized. Be baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And then, after you have been baptized, look what he says next in verse 20, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So here is what the church is responsible for. First, preach the gospel. Make disciples. Second, baptize them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not an option. This is a command. And then after you've baptized them, now we have a responsibility for people like Cadence to take her and teach her. Teach her what? What did he say? What do we teach them? To observe all the things that I have commanded you. This is what we do every Sunday. Every Wednesday night. This is why we get together and we study the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. Because we have a responsibility as disciples and followers of Him, people that have been buried in the death of Jesus and their sins have been washed away, and people that have risen up to walk in new life that He gives us, we have a responsibility to learn, to observe all the things that He commanded because we are followers of Him now, right? And so the baptism is kind of like the first step of your obedience. Not kind of like, it really is the first step of your obedience. 
The first thing we do is we make a public demonstration that says, I believe that I and my old sinful life have been buried with Christ. And I believe that my sins have been washed away because of His death. And I believe that I have been risen with Him in His resurrection, and just like He has been given new life, He too has given me new life. And now I'm going to walk in this newness of life. And so, one of the things that we see was that notice what He says in Matthew 28 at the end of verse 20 right there. And behold, I am with you always to what? To the end of the age. What does that tell you about the mission of going and making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them? It does not end until when? The end of the age. And so even today, we still have a command to make disciples, baptize them, not an option, a command, and then we have a command to teach them to continue to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded. And the authority, this authoritative figure tells you, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. Don't let this overwhelm you. Why? I'm with you. I'm with you. Always to the end of the age. So this was meant to be an ongoing practice. Now go with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 6. And I want to show you just scripturally what I just told you a minute ago, that this is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. And it is important. Listen, here's the thing. Man, wouldn't you know the night I'm going to preach on this, I left my wedding band at home. But let me ask you a question. Even though I don't have my wedding band on tonight, does that mean that I'm not married to my wife right now? Because that wedding band is not what marries me to my wife, is it? What is it that marries me to my wife? That vow that I spoke. those That covenant that I made in the sight of God. And so, in the same way that I take that wedding band and after I have committed myself to her in covenant, in marriage, with God as our witness, after I do that, I take that wedding band and I say, with this ring, I thee wed. And I promise to love, honor, cherish, or whatever the the vows that you spoke may be. The point of it is this. That wedding band is a picture and a representation of my commitment and my covenant that I have made to my wife. And so, if I wear that wedding band, it doesn't really make me any more married to her, but is that wedding band important to her? If I don't have it on tonight, guess what I'm going to hear when I get home? Why? <laughs> but, let me ask, but seriously, why is it important? Why is it important? Because of what it represents, right? Because it is a symbol of this commitment that I have made. And so, the point that I'm making is this. In a similar way, baptism does the same thing. I want you to understand that 
Baptism is not what actually unites you with Christ. It is by faith alone that you are uniting to Christ. And I'll show you Scriptures to prove that here in just a few minutes. However, that, that wedding ring is very important because it says, this is the love that I have, I have committed to show toward my wife until death do we part. And in the same way with baptism. It is the symbol and the sign that says, this is what God has done in my life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so look with me at Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 6. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that... What's those next two words? Just as, some of you say um, in a similar manner or likewise, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then look at verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, not just buried in water. Do you know how many people have been baptized over the centuries and yet they were not ever united with Jesus Christ? They came in that water a sinner, and guess what they walked out of that water? The same wet sinner. That was it. What it means to be united with Christ is when we have been united in a death like His. In other words, Jesus died and He covered all those sins. He paid the payment for sins. When we say that we are burying our old life in the death of Jesus, we make a commitment that I am dying to myself, to my sinful life. I recognize that I'm a sinner against God. See, there's too many Christians today that think being a Christian is about coming and bowing on a knee and saying a prayer. Now, I'm not saying that, a pr- that, that when you pray that prayer that that's, not, that that's not when you're saved. I'm talking about it's whenever you understand that I am a sinner in the hands of an angry God. And unless my sin is dealt with in some way, I'm going to stand guilty before Him and I'm going to have to pay that price. And then you recognize and you hear the Gospel, Jesus Christ has already paid that price for me. And you believe it and you trust in it. You make a decision that I am burying my old sinful life with Jesus Christ and I am trusting what He has done on the cross to cover my sins. And just in the same way that He was raised from the dead, I'm going to raise from the dead in the same likeness and I am going to walk in a path that He that is just like the new life that He gives. So look again in Romans 6 verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like Him, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Your eyes have been opened to it. Are y'all tracking with me? 
Your eyes have been opened to it so that now you no longer want to live in sin anymore. Now you have a desire to live following Jesus Christ. Now do you still sin? Yes. Go back with me to Romans the chapter 5, verse um, 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's where we get, here's how we got to chapter 6. Paul basically told them, where sin increased in your life as a Christian, guess what? Grace abounded even more. In other words, as a Christian, are you still going to fall to sin? Yeah, yeah. But the good news is this, where sin abounds, Grace abounds even more. But then we move to the question of chapter 6 in verse 1. So what do we say to this then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer to that? No, by no means, Paul said. Why? Because how can we who died to sin still live in it? So again, here's the point. Baptism is what says we have made the commitment to bury this old life of sin in the death of Jesus. I have made a decision in my life to die to sin so that I do not want to live in it any longer. Now yes, when I do make these decisions to sin and when I do fall to it, grace abounds even more. But I'm not just going to keep living in sin as if I've never died to it. Because if you keep living in sin as if you've never died to it, guess what? You've probably never truly been united with Him in a death like His. But go with me to verse 5 again of Romans 6. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. You want to know one of the ways that you know whether or not you're a Christian? You want to know whether or not your baptism was genuine or not? Are you walking in a new life like He walked? Do you see the change in your life that God is making? Do you see the old man of sin being buried and dying every day? And do you see the new man being resurrected and following Jesus? Do you see that you are not just a believer, but a disciple? And you've been baptized. And you are learning to observe all the things that Jesus commanded. And you are dying to your old self. And you are rising up every day to walk in the newness of life that He gives. And if you don't see that in your life, and you've never seen that in your life, I can pretty much guarantee you today you have never been born again. Now, some of you look at me and say, you're judging me, preacher. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. The question you need to ask is, am I judging rightly? Am I judging rightly? And if I am, then you need to address that in your life. And you need to make a decision to die to sin to bury that old life with Jesus Christ 
and to rise up in new life that He gives you and be united with Him in a resurrection like He is. Why? Read verse 6 with me again. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to it. Look at verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And you can read the rest of that on your own, but here's the point. Baptism is the picture of what you just read. Just as Jesus was buried and died for all sin, you too have made a decision to die to all sin. And just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead and He walks in newness of life, you too now rise up from the deadness of your sins and you follow Him in newness of life. And if you see that in your life, that's the evidence that you have been born again. So baptism is the drama, if you will. It's kind of like anybody ever ever watched a, a Christmas play or seen... Um, uh, seeing some kind of a, a play, and um, and it dramatizes something, right? It dramatizes a story for you. So a lot of times it's a reenactment of something that's already happened, right? Sometimes it's just a made-up story, but a lot of times it's people up there reenacting things. And so what you have here is the drama, if you will, of the reality that has already taken place in Cadence is life by faith. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 9. So that you can see that the Bible is very clear that we're saved by one thing. One thing. And it ain't water. It ain't water. What are we saved by? Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him. With who? With Jesus. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I love that. That's probably one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Why did God save you? Well, first off, He saved you because He was rich in mercy. What does it mean to be rich in something? Got a lot of it, don't he? He said, but God being rich in mercy, even when you were dead in your sins, 
He raised you up and seated you with Jesus. By grace you have been saved. And then verse 7 tells us here's why He did it. So that in the coming ages... How did He put it? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did He do it? To show it. One day... All creation that is in heaven is going to marvel at the fact that you're there. And the only thing you will... Will anybody in here ever be able to say, well, the reason I'm here is because once I got saved, oh, I followed Him so good. Oh, once I got saved, I started preaching the gospel and I lived for Him and I did this and I did... Will anybody actually be able to say that? The only thing they'll be able to say is, the only reason I'm here, it's the only reason I'm here. And everybody is going to look at that and they're going to go, how immeasurable is His mercy and His grace in Christ Jesus? And then look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I will never be able to stand before God. Abraham, there are so many people that honestly believe, and I used to be one of these, but there are so many people that honestly believe, well, the reason God chose Abraham is because He knew that Abraham was going to do this and do that. No, wrong. Wrong. Only reason Abraham was saved is by the grace of God. Abraham was a sinner just like the rest of the world. Noah was a sinner just like the rest of the world, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that's all we'll be able to say. I will never be able to boast about anything. All I'll be able to say is, God, only reason I'm here is because of Your grace. And so... Faith and grace are the only reason we're saved. However, baptism demonstrates that this is what has been done in my life by grace through faith. Now, the next thing I want you to know about baptism is that baptism is immersion in water. What does it mean to immerse something? That's right. You submerge it, right? You take it all the way under... Because if baptism represents being buried, then how does, if I take this water and get a little on my fingers and go, does that signify that you have been buried with Jesus? The Bible teaches us that baptism is by immersion. It is by, and remember whenever um, the Ethiopian eunuch, he looked at Philip and he said, hey, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, well, nothing if you believe with all your heart. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And the Bible says they went down into the water. And then he baptized him and they came up out of the water. So we have example after example. If you were to go with me to John, somebody look at the Gospel of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. 
while you're turning there, I'd also like you to know that where we get the word baptized comes from a Greek word that literally means to submerge a piece of material and to bring it out. They were dying it. So basically, baptizo, I think, was the Greek word. And they were, it meant to take a garment and to submerge it in dye so that when you bring it back out, it is a completely different color. That's where we get that word. And so, look at John chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside, and He remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was what? Why was He baptizing in this place? Plenty of water. In other words, there was enough water there for them to be submerged. And again, why is that important? Because there are a lot of faiths today that take this symbol that symbolizes the death and burial of your old self in the death of Jesus and the resurrection from dead walking in newness of life just like Jesus was raised from the dead. A lot of faiths today take that and they turn that symbol into sprinkling. Or there are some that turn that symbol into pouring a cup of water over your head. Now let me tell you where that comes from. In the early first century there was a document that they didn't know for certain if um, this was actually the teaching of the apostles, but there was a document that kind of gave um, some order of how to conduct things in the church. It was called the Didache, I believe is how you pronounce it. And you can look it up, um, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, I believe is how you spell it. But it's a document that gives guidance on certain things. And it was believed that the twelve apostles actually wrote this document to give it to churches to give them some guidance. Well, in this guidance document, there is a um, an article about baptism. And it actually says that when you baptize somebody, if it is at all possible, you baptize them in living water is what it says. And it meant water that's flowing. So basically, a creek or a river is kind of what the document said. But they said if there is no living water to baptize them in, then you could baptize them in standing water, basically is what they said. And then it said, if there is not much water where you are baptizing, um, or for whatever circumstance you didn't have that, then they gave guidance to take and pour three cups of water over their head in one in the name of the Father, one in the name of the Son, one in the name of the Holy Spirit. So there is some... We can see here that if that is a teaching from the apostles, and that's the reason why it's not in your Bible today, because it could never be confirmed that it was actually of the apostles' teaching. And so it didn't get included in your biblical canon today because it couldn't be confirmed to be of the apostles or teachings of Jesus. And so if, um, if it could have been confirmed, then we believe what was actually happened was they weren't giving a way, an excuse to be able to go around doing it uh, to, in submersion, in, our, in immersion, but instead, they were giving guidance for situations to where you may not be able to. Um, and so there would be situations to where water was not readily available. 
For instance, if the, if the Ethiopian eunuch had been driving through a desert and there was no water, he would never have been able to say, well, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? He would have had to have just waited until there was water. But there were many different circumstances to where it might have been possible or impossible for immersion to take place. And if that were the case, then the apostles were saying, I'm not trying to say that it's a command that you do it this way, and if you don't do it this way, then you're not going to be saved. I truly believe that the Bible tells us that we're not under the law, but we're under grace, right? And so I believe that yes, there may be situations to where it may be appropriate to baptize maybe a deathbed salvation. Maybe somebody can't get to a baptism or to a creek or something. And so maybe you would have in that situation to where you could follow the command of Jesus and do that. But I believe that if at all possible, we ought to follow the example given to us in Scripture we are to follow the example that we read about over and over in pretty much every circumstance, and we should baptize in immersion. And again, because of what it symbolizes, the proclamation that it says, and because it was a command of Jesus, not just an option for us to be able to do. And so that's something I believe is very important. All right. And then next thing I want you to understand is baptism is a Trinitarian event. We do it in whose names? So by putting the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on us, then it is said that we have peace with God the Father and it has come through the Son and His sacrifice and He has given us His Holy Spirit to guide us, to seal us. And so in baptism, you're not waiting on some special baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're not waiting on some, something to fall from heaven. It is in baptism that you are baptized in the name of the Father because through your salvation, peace has already been made with the Father, right? And through the Son, He has delivered you from the wrath of God. And through the Holy Spirit, He seals you and He guides you until the day that He brings you home to be with Him for eternity. And so, baptism is a Trinitarian event. It involves all of them. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's another reason why we baptize in those names. And then the last thing I'll tell you about baptism night is this. Baptism is for believers only. There's a reason why we don't do child baptisms. Now there are some faiths that... The truth of it is, this is the number one reason I'm not a Presbyterian. Chris will understand this. If it weren't for their views of child baptism, I would be a Presbyterian preacher. Just because of the fact that that's where my doctrine... And, and you wouldn't know the difference because you sit under my teaching anyway. But what I teach you is really more Presbyterian doctrine than it is a lot of Baptist doctrine. However, the views of their understanding of baptism, way off. Way off. And so because we believe that baptism is for believers only, because think about it, if this is how we proclaim that we have been buried and our old sinful life is gone, 
And we have been raised up to walk in newness of life, like we read in Romans chapter 1, right? If that is what we proclaim and that's what baptism represents, how can a child do that? How can a newborn baby do that? They can't because they have not made that public profession of faith. They have not come to a place to where they have heard the gospel, they've understood the gospel, they have believed the gospel. And so our job as a church and teachers is to raise these children up to understand their need for Jesus so that one day when they understand what it means to be a sinner, they will make their own public profession of faith. And when they do that, and it takes place in their life that their old sinful life has been buried with Jesus, and when it takes place in their life that they've been given new life through the Spirit of God, then they will go through with the ordinance of baptism. And so we believe that baptism is for believers only. And so again, remember what the Ethiopian eunuch said in that story we read? He said, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? You remember what Philip said? Nothing if what? Nothing if you believe with all your heart. What hinders me from this? Nothing if you believe with all your heart. So what does that tell you if a person has not believed yet? They're hindered from baptism, right? Why? Because this represents somebody who has believed the gospel and this life transformation has taken place inside of them. And if that has not happened, then basically you've just given the baby a bath. <laughs> and I guess that's okay, but it's not going to do anything for them as far as spiritual things are concerned. In closing, baptism is a requirement for a Christian, not an option. And so I say to you tonight, if you've never been baptized, this is not about me. This is not about Ronnie. That's the reason why. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I believe it is. This will be the last scripture I'll take you to. But it's important that you see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's look at verse. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Verse 12. And then we'll read down through verse. Um, 16, I think, or 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> and Paul is talking to a Corinthian church and they're, they're fussing over who, who they follow. Some people say, well, I follow Paul. Some people say, well, I follow Cephas. Somebody may say, well, I follow Kevin, or I follow Ronnie, or I follow Nick, or I follow Bobby, or I follow Fagan. That's kind of what was going on here. And so in verse 12, he says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And look at verse 16. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to what? 
but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so here's the point that I'm trying to make in this. Baptism ain't got nothing to do with me. Nothing. I am only the disciple who has helped to make another disciple, and now I just get the privilege of taking part of the drama of what Jesus has done in that person's life. It ain't got anything to do with me. It's got everything to do with Him and that person and what God has done for them. And Paul said, I didn't baptize none of y'all, <laughs> except maybe just a handful, and I'm glad I didn't. So here's one, we learned several things from that, but here's one of the things we learned. For Paul, baptism and the gospel were two different things. The gospel is where someone was saved. Baptism is where it was demonstrated. And so it wasn't that baptism was not important to Paul. It was that the gospel took primary purpose and then whoever baptized can baptize. <laughs> Paul said, I don't know who baptized you. I'm not even worried about that. The only thing I want you to know is that this ain't got nothing to do with me. I didn't die for you. He did. And so it's important that you understand that if you have never been baptized, it don't matter which disciple of Jesus Christ baptizes you. It ain't got nothing to do with them. The fact of the matter is, is that you understand what God has done in your life through the gospel and your faith in it and your trust in it, and that as a result of that, now you want to take the next step to demonstrate it. To say, this is what God has done in my life. I have made a commitment to bury the old man in his sinful ways or her sinful ways. And I am making a commitment to rise up and walk in new life that He provides. And if you have never done that, then I don't care if it's me or Fagan or Bobby or, or whoever, but you need to make that decision to do that today. Why? Because it's not an option. It's a command. It's your first step of obedience. And I want to encourage you to do that today. If you have been baptized, but you never had a time to where you truly died to self and you truly rose up in new life to follow Him, I would say to you today that your baptism was probably in vain. And all you did was, like I said about the baby, you took a bath. And maybe it made you smell better. But that's all it did for you. And so I would say to you today, today is the day that you make that decision to say, Lord, I'm dying to my sin. I recognize that if I don't put my faith and trust in You, I know what the end result is. And I put my faith and trust in You and I believe that Jesus died to save me from my sin and I am going to rise up in new life through the power that You give me and I'm going to follow You and I'm going to learn to observe all the things that You have commanded. And then, when you make that decision, then it's time to get baptized. That's your next step. If you've trusted Christ and you've been baptized in His name, but you got off track, how many of you know that happens? I want to tell you today that if sin abounds, guess what? Grace abounds even more. Even more. And all you but do is have godly sorrow in your heart and turn away from it, repent from it, come back to Him, ask Him for His forgiveness and keep trusting in Christ and you will be forgiven and you just get back on track 
And it's that simple. You don't need to be rebaptized. <laughs> you don't need to be buried again and risen up to walk in new life again. You just simply need to do what the Bible says, repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. And if you'll keep doing that, that's the path to salvation for each and every one of us. There will be many times in your life for Cadence, there's going to be many times in Cadence's life where she gets off track. She thinks to be a teenager soon. You think she's going to make all the right decisions? Sorry, Michael. She ain't going to make all the right decisions. She's going to make some bad decisions, some decisions that are not godly. But if she will keep turning her eyes back to the cross, and she'll keep trusting in what Christ has done for her, and she'll keep her eyes focused back on coming back to Him, where her sin abounds, grace will abound so much more. And it will always abound more than her sin. That's a promise. All right. If y'all would, let's go to the Lord in prayer and you'll be dismissed. Father, I just want to thank You tonight for, um, Lord, the, the demonstration that You've given us to truly see just a, a small picture of what has happened in, in the life of Cadence tonight. God, I thank You, God, that she has heard Your Gospel, she has believed it. And Father, her sins have been forgiven and they have been washed away. Father, I thank You tonight, God, that You have buried her old life in You and her past sins are forgiven, her present sins are forgiven, and even every future sin that she has not even committed yet. Father, they have all been buried and washed away in the death of Your Son. And Father, I pray, God, Lord, that You would just help her to rise up and walk in new life. Father, I pray, God, that she would just be found um, uh, learning all she can about You to, to observe everything that You have commanded. Father, I pray, God, that she would be a true disciple, someone who has a heart and a mind that just wants to follow You. And Father, I pray, God, that You would help us to help her do that. Father, I just pray tonight for anyone here that has never been through the, the, the salvation, Father. Lord, if there's one here tonight that they have never truly died to their sin, they have never truly trusted in You to the point that new life has come into them. Father, I pray that tonight would be the night that they would humble themselves before You. They would come to one of us and, Father, we could just lead them down that path. Father, I pray tonight for, um, uh, Lord, the ones that maybe have been saved and been baptized, but, Father, they have um, strayed away. Father, I pray tonight that they would just be reminded that Your grace abounds so much more than all their sin. That, Father, this is not a sin that You didn't anticipate when You saved them to begin with. This is not a sin You didn't know about. <laughs> Father, You knew what they were going to do when You saved them. And Father, I thank You for that. And Father, I pray tonight that they would trust that and that they would believe Your Gospel, that they would repent of their sin and they would come running back to You. Father, I just pray and I give You thanks tonight for, for Your Word and for just... Um, reminding us who You are and what You've done for us. Father, I pray that whatever response needs to be made tonight and in anyone's life that's here tonight, Father, I pray that You would lead them to do that and help us to take them down the right path. Father, I love You. Lord, forgive us where we fail You, but thank You so much for Your mercy, Your grace, Father. Lord, we know that's the only reason we are saved. And Father, we ask You for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.